like to begin, if I may, by reading to you one translation of a verse that is often known as the Bodhisattva vow. It says, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Though greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to end them. Though the Dharma is vast and fathomless, I vow to understand it. Though Buddha's way is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. This verse, this vow, is in reality recited by countless people in temples and monasteries and by individuals on a cushion around the world on a daily basis. It is essentially a way of reaffirming in people's hearts and minds the essence of meditative practice and the essence of a spiritual path. Sometime around the first century AD in northern India, what is now uh, Afghanistan, one of the most graceful and powerful texts in the Buddhist tradition was composed in Sanskrit. And that text came to be known as the Lotus Sutta, where the central theme is the portrayal of a very powerful and boundless compassion, the embodiment of an enlightened mind, a compassion that is said to pervade all corners of the universe, relieving anguish and pain and suffering wherever it touches. In this text, it speaks of this uh, idea, sense of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, which translates into English as one who listens to the sounds of the universe and one who hears the cries of the world. When the Lotus Sutta was translated into Chinese somewhere around 400 AD, the name Kuan Yin emerged, who again became the symbol of the embodiment of compassion that continues to occupy a very central place in this teaching and practice ever since. It is interesting that over the centuries, this symbol of compassion of Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin has been portrayed in a variety of different ways. That this compassion through Kuan Yin is perhaps the most familiar portrayal is where Kuan Yin is depicted as a feminine presence with a face of serenity, with arms outstretched, with eyes open, a receptive and warm and embracing presence. She's often portrayed seated upon a lotus flower, and the lotus then is a symbol for the deepening and the opening, the flowering of heart and mind. And in one hand, she holds a book of suttas or discourses, that describes the place of the understanding of emptiness in compassion. And in the other hand, she holds a vase, which is the symbol of the outpouring of a bottomless love 
and compassion. Over centuries, of course, compassion has been portrayed, or Kuan Yin has also been portrayed or depicted in other forms, sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman. In China, often portrayed holding a willow branch. And the willow is the symbol of the capacity to bend in the most fierce storms and winds of life and yet not be broken. To be able to bend and yet also spring back upright. And the weeping willow in itself is often seen to be a symbol of her compassionate care for the ills of the world. Sometimes Kanyan is depicted with a thousand arms and hands, and in the center of each hand there's an eye. And it, it's a symbol of her constant awareness of suffering. This is not a deification, by the way. This is only the way that compassion is given a certain form. And that symbol of an eye in the center of each hand is a symbol of a constant awareness of suffering and the all-embracing compassion. Another portrayal, which initially I think seems a little puzzling, is when Kuan Yin is portrayed as a, as a, a, a kind of armed warrior, he comes with a multitude of weapons, like a medieval fighter, crossbows and swords and lances and shields. But this is another facet of compassion, the commitment to protecting life to uprooting the causes of anger. And sometimes what is portrayed in this is the kind of fearlessness and the fierceness of compassion. I think all these different portrayals of compassion are, well, they're certainly not an invitation to create a kind of idealized or distant aspiration that is then projected into the future. It's more like these different portrayals of compassion really depict and invite our understanding of the many different facets, the many different aspects that make up compassion. It is also important not to be dualistic, I think, in our understanding of compassion. I think many times we are drawn to the gentle, to the receptive, the serene, nurturing element of compassion. But it is important to remember that compassion is also at times fierce and fearless when it wholeheartedly engages with the end of suffering. It is almost as if this compassionate receptivity and compassionate agency are just different expressions of one whole. Central to profound compassion is commitment. The commitment to ending sorrow and suffering in all its forms. It's also a commitment to ending the causes of sorrow and suffering in all their forms. In this practice and teaching, it's also said that compassion emerges in a profound understanding of emptiness, and yet at the same time engages unconditionally with the world of the relatives, with the very real world of people and events, 
of loss and sorrow and hatred and anger. In the Diamond Sutra, which is Sutra on Compassion, it said any bodhisattva, and if I use the word bodhisattva if you're not familiar with it, it's often a word used to really depict a very profound uh, commitment within someone towards the end of all suffering. It's a little bit more than that. In the Diamond Sutra, it said that any bodhisattva who undertakes the practice of meditation should treasure one thought only. Understanding perfect wisdom, I will vow to liberate all beings from the wheel of suffering and sorrow. And yet when vast myriads of beings have been liberated, truly no being has been liberated. Why? Because no bodhisattva who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self or others. This, I think, apparently paradoxical statement illustrates the powerful marriage of both understanding the nature of emptiness and yet being fully present in the very real world of beings who do suffer, who do experience pain and anguish. The Bodhisattva is not an idealized, not an idealized figure who inhabits some other realm. The classroom of compassion and the classroom of the Bodhisattva is this life. in the commitment to understanding the causes and the end of sorrow in this life. It's where there is created the mind and the heart of compassion. As I mentioned earlier, anyone can be compassionate at a distance when we're undisturbed and unchallenged. But true compassion is not forged at a distance. It's actually forged in very often in the fires of conflict and sorrow and struggle. Shantideva was a great Indian mystic. Once put it, he said, whatever you are doing, ask yourself, what is the state of mind? With constant mindfulness and alertness, accomplish good. This is the practice of the Bodhisattva. Compassion is needed so urgently simply because there is life, there is sorrow, that at times seems bottomless. And to respond to life we are asked to be present, to understand the causes of sorrow wherever they arise. Compassion is not really about saving anyone. It is much more concerned with the open-hearted willingness to probe beneath the surface of pain and to bring to an end its cause. Milarepa, another great Indian teacher, once said, long accustomed to contemplating compassion, I have forgotten all difference between self and other. 
There is a universality to the experiences of grief, of anger, of fear, of rage, despair, of frustration. When we're in the midst of any of those experiences, we're often convinced that no one has ever felt this way before. And yet there is no pain that we can experience that hasn't been experienced before by another in a different time and place. This doesn't in any way lessen or diminish the pain we experience in our life. But more and more we come to understand the possibilities of the human heart to know both pain and joy. I had a friend whose child died when she was very young. And after the death of her daughter, she felt desperately isolated and alone and grieving. And her, her pain was actually made worse because she felt so reluctant to keep on imposing the depth of her pain upon her friends and other people. So that when people asked her how she was doing, you know, she would smile and and say that she was doing okay and that she was coping. Even though inwardly she felt almost a bottomlessness, anguish. And she found herself actually going to a group that really didn't have any agenda to fix anything. It was a group meant for people who had lost someone who they loved very deeply. And she said when she went to that group, it was a listening time that she would sit and listen to one story after another, one story of a broken heart after another that so much reflected her own. And she said she found in that group, just in that that capacity to listen and to be listened to, that this was place where her healing began. We can see that there is so much sorrow and pain in this life that is born of a very profound and unquestioned belief that we exist as separate and independent from the rest of the universe. In our lives, we often feel and believe and live this separateness. And in the depths of that belief, it's perhaps inevitable that one of the primary concerns in our life comes to be our own survival, the protection and the enhancement of this isolated and separate self. Sometimes I think we feel to be one vulnerable and fragile self living in a world of many separate selves. And they they don't always feel benevolent. Sometimes we're competing with that world. Sometimes we're anxious about it. Sometimes we're craving the attention of it. And we don't always sense or appreciate the way that our vulnerability or our feeling of vulnerability It's reflected in the myriad of mirrors of countless beings around us. What we perhaps do begin to sense is that anxiety and sadness are the mood of this feeling of being isolated and separate. It's 
feelings, that anxiety and sadness are feelings often very difficult to embrace. And because they are difficult to embrace, instead we tend to fill our lives up with busyness, with doing, with distractedness, the layers of camouflage that we often believe that protect us from feeling that underlying sadness. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda called Keeping Quiet. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps the huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves alive. <clears throat> as I mentioned today, the gap between self and other, it's not neutral and it's not empty. The, the gap between self and other is where anxiety and sadness and fear and prejudice live. Our belief in ourself as separate and isolated is a belief that essentially segregates us from the rest of the world. We think of ourselves as my body, my history, my family, my wants, my needs, my fears, my likes, my dislikes, my mind, my heart. These all belong to the territory of me and mine, separate from you and yours, sometimes in harmony and sometimes in conflict. Sometimes we get a common bond of preferences. We get a common bond of identification. You know, our likes, our uh, opinions are shared by another, and then we create an us. Again, often existing separate from them, sometimes in harmony and often not. Recently I was reading a newspaper article that was trying to track down the causes of one of the recent, more recent outbreaks of violence in Ireland, Northern Ireland. And when they investigated it, they discovered it, it happened when two women went out shopping, one Catholic and one Protestant. And when they were returning home with their shopping from opposite directions, they had to pass by each other on the sidewalk. And both of them refused to give way to the other. So they stopped in front of each other, holding their bags of shopping. It began with insults being exchanged. A crowd gathered, more insults were exchanged, stones were thrown. Eventually someone died within the ensuing riot. Us and them. We can, on a daily basis, almost practice an almost unconscious apartheid that keep ourselves close to you and them that seems to threaten the foundations of me and I. 
mean, really profound compassion actually rests upon a commitment to understanding and dissolving this almost invisible barrier that keeps us imprisoned in that sense of separateness. Delusion is not a life sentence. We have the freedom to question, to investigate. We have the freedom to choose how we perceive ourselves and the world. Certainly I think for all of us there are moments when there's a very natural, unforced falling away of separation. Moments of opening, moments of embracing, moments of connection. Unexpected moments. Have you ever walked by someone on the street, someone that's homeless who asks you for something? You ever notice those times when you can just kind of reach into your pocket out of embarrassment and just thrust money at somebody and, and yet they're still completely invisible to you? And then another time you can walk by and you can pause and you can look in their eyes and you sense the difference in how you perceive the world in that moment. Sometimes we look at the frailty of an elderly person and we can feel their frailty quivering in our own hearts. The moments of opening don't have to be lucky accidents left to chance. I think we can be relentless in our questioning of separation. I think we can be quite relentless in probing the ways that we might perpetuate this sense of division. I think we can, through meditation and questioning, challenge this seemingly almost impenetrable core of self, this ideology of self. It's not enough always just to want to feel compassionate, although this is very important. It's certainly not enough to hold fine theories of emptiness. Somehow we need to translate that longing and that wanting into the language of direct understanding and experience. And this is part of fierce compassion, the commitment to melting barriers. When we look at our sense of self, what does it rest on? Our appearance, our body, our personality, our history. This is the story of ourselves. You know, the story of ourselves is built on all of this. Sometimes it seems like a very long story, a very long saga that began before we were even born. But it's not an eternal story. But we see that our story of self is one that's constantly being rewritten. Sometimes it's being rewritten through new experience, sometimes through understanding. I think it's only when our sense of separate self or separation is not questioned, then it, it remains a kind of closed book, a finished manuscript. And I think that's when we're really imprisoned in our story. 
Our story and our sense of self can be written by what we cling to and identify with. My gender, my, my opinions, my race, my thoughts. When our story is written by what we cling to, I think that's when it often continues to foster and deepen the sense of separation. How do we define other? How do we define this sense of them? We identify them by race, by body, by history, by our religion. Well, we can see we can see that when our story rests upon clinging, we have an investment in separation. We often don't even want our assumptions to be challenged because then who would we be? We can see that it is often fear that keeps us holding and clinging to this sense of self. And the more strong our fear is, the degree that we want to objectify others. We see this so quickly, you know, like, like imagine maybe today somebody has offended you or maybe in the recent past somebody has offended you. How often our, it's our sense of me that's offended, isn't it? You know, myself is offended. And when someone offends us, how immediately we want to objectify them, you know, and we can't just feel, oh, they offended me. Instead, we have to write this long story about, you know, what a terrible person they are, you know, all the things that are wrong with them, all their imperfections. They get longer by the moment. Whatever we cling to leaves us open to being offended, afraid, and distant. You know, recently I had this weird experience where, you know, I have a teenage son, and, uh, wait, you used to have friends come hulking around the house, you know, and they took up a lot of space and they made a lot of noise. And usually they would ignore me, you know, or the language of grunts, you know. And if you've uh, been around teenagers, the language of grunts, you know. How you doing, sir? He's a major communicator. And uh, once in a while one would come and they'd try and be really polite, you know, and make conversation with me. And there was this young man, he asked me what I did, and as I explained to him what I did, and he obviously was a little puzzled by this. <laughs> and, and he said, why would you want to do that? Why would anybody want to do that? And so I gave him a little mini Dharma talk, you know, about how everybody, you know, longs for peace, and, you know, wants, wants peace. And he looked at me, and he said, I don't. And I just felt really offended. You know, the, like, how can he say, I, I don't? You know, like, I just gave him this mini Dharma talk, and he says, I don't. You know, it's like, I felt quite offended in some weird way, and I thought, oh, that's clinging. Isn't that clinging to a belief? And immediately the sense of other is there. I was invited in America last year to take part in the peace vigil after the attacks on September 11th. And as you can imagine, most people who went to that day had a lot in common of wanting to find some reconciliation and understanding. And it really wasn't, there was really no object to the day, but people took turns speaking. And, and at some point in the day, 
this woman came into the room and she was listening for a while and as she listened she became increasingly upset and agitated. And eventually she blurted out that she thought everybody there was wrong and that, you know, there should be as much revenge and as much retaliation as possible and that forgiveness and understanding would only be a, 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 a useless path. And when she blurted this out, you could almost feel like this in-breath happening in the room that wasn't followed by an out-breath. <laughs> and there was almost this perceptible sense of the kind of the walls going up and how immediately she became the other. Simply, you know, the, the other, someone separate. What was so good and so important in that space was the kind of shared willingness to, to sense that, to look at that, to question it, and to begin to at least find the willingness to sense, of course, the, the lineage of hurt behind what she said, rather than this freezing into other. It is often what happens in our life. The moment someone is frozen into other, it becomes the end of the story. And those are the times when we really look at what does compassion mean in those moments. Very often I feel compassion really means the willingness to cross the borders in our own hearts and minds. The borders created by what we cling to. Because those are the borders of fear. Because if we aren't willing to cross the borders in our own hearts and minds, I think we can live in a state of almost perpetual anxiety and anger. Santideva put it, he says, the mind does not find peace, nor does it enjoy pleasure or joy, nor does it find rest or courage when the thorn of hatred dwells in the heart. In brief, there is nothing that can make an angry person happy. Unruly beings are like space. There's not enough time to overcome them. Uprooting these angry thoughts is like defeating all of our enemies. Our story can be written by clinging. It can also be written by compassion, by a willingness to understand, a willingness to embrace and understand the causes of suffering and to end them through wisdom. We all clearly have an appearance in the world, a story in this life. I mean, my story is different than your story. Your story is different than the person who sits beside you. And our story is born of the conditions of our lives, conditions of which we're not always in control. But the story is never the whole. One of my teachers, Melinda, once said to me, the thought of your mother is not your mother. 
the thought of ourself is not the whole of ourselves. It's also true that our story is no obstacle to profound compassion. In many ways, when we can embrace our story, we understand its potential for creating sorrow or for creating healing and joy. Well, to embrace our stories, to embrace all stories, it's the path of the Bodhisattva. Milarepa said it, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of my body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for the wound in another, wherever it exists, as part of this body? Compassion does not imply that we never feel anger, outrage, or fear, injustice, and harshness, oppression, prejudice. Of course they evoke a response in us. And anger and fear carry the energy with them to really awaken us. We never feel more awake, in fact. But that energy can be channeled into harm or understanding, into perpetuating sorrow or relieving it. This, I think, is really the fearlessness of compassion. That we, none of us can choose not to engage with the world that we're part of. That we can only choose how we engage with the world we're part of. And compassion does ask us to be engaged in every moment, to know when there's a time for really receptivity, for listening, for stillness. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we really need to know how to be still and to be empty in the face of suffering, to listen to the cries of the world, knowing we can bend and also come upright. But I think also compassion asks us to know when when we need to be fearless, when we need to be fearless in our actions and speeches and choices, when to say no with wisdom, when we are called upon to protect the well-being of another or of ourselves, to protect them from harm. That not always means that we have to engage in some heroic action, but to know what it means to reach out another as instinctively as we would reach out to our own bodies. There's a really wonderful poem. It says, The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out and gather into his hands the small toads blinded by our lights and leaping like drops of rain. The rain was falling a mist about his white hair, and I kept saying, you can't save them all. Accept it. Get back in. We've got places to go. But leathery hands full of wet brown life, knee-deep in the summer roadside grass, he just smiled and said, they have places to go to.
Just as compassion doesn't measure the worth of any act or response to release suffering, neither does compassion really measure the value of suffering itself. You know, some people, because of their own history, they can feel to be unworthy or unlovable or undeserving of attention. And they can make a hierarchy out of suffering. Sometimes they look, you look around and you see the immense pain in the world of, of famine and war and illness and, and feel it somehow kind of inappropriate or self-indulgent to care for your own ailing body or your broken heart or your obsessive mind. It's very easy to trivialize the pain in our own life. I don't think genuine compassion really has any hierarchies or any boundaries. And if we don't know the way to be patient and steadfast, to receive and tend to the pain in our own lives when they arise, how could we ever expect to find the patience and the steadfastness to listen to the cries of the world? Receiving and listening to the pain and sorrow that arises in our own life at times, we are enabled to more deeply receive and understand the pain in all hearts and minds and bodies. I think we in the world are perhaps endangered most of all by an unwillingness to listen, to understand pain and its cause. So I think if we ignore pain, then the capacity that we have for understanding and for healing, I think it just gets channeled into perpetuating separation and deluded activity. To learn to be patient, to learn to be fearless in receiving pain and anger and fear, to understand its causes, this is what opens the door about wisdom and compassion. Making no distinction between self and other. If we take our seat in a kind of firmness and openness in the midst of the storms of the world. More and more we come to understand a friend of mine, Stephen, once put it, we come to understand that we really cannot attain awakening for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of life. And when we do this practice, when we undertake the practice of compassion, it really is in that intention to participate in the awakening of life. Give just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.